0: One again, just want to take a second to thank you all for the calls and the texts and just the well wishes that you guys sent me and Elaine over the last week. Uh, We both felt super rough, but uh, all your care and concern helps a lot. And we're back now, and hopefully my voice will last through this sermon. If not, I'll just hand my notes off to Mr. Jacob. He'll finish it up from there. It'll be fine. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, that's where our main passage is going to be for today, and we're going to read verses 7 and 8. I think this is a passage that maybe we all know well. But I think we can be aided by taking another look at it. Because this passage comes in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And to this point in the sermon, Jesus has talked about the righteous lives that his disciples are called to. Such a righteousness is exemplified by the Beatitudes. And it's exemplified maybe in a negative way by the Pharisees, who were really the opposite of Jesus's righteousness. Because they were worshiping God in appearances but they were really worshiping themselves. And then comes Matthew 7. The first half about of Matthew 7 is about how you treat others. And in the middle of that passage is Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, our passage for today. And if you'll read with me, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And we'll stop there for now. And you might be thinking, based on what we just said about the context of this passage, this is kind of weird. This passage is about our relationship with God, right? It's about prayer, maybe, right? But that's not what's going on here in this context, at least not fully, because Jesus already talked about our relationship with God and how we should worship in chapter 5. And he talked about prayer in chapter 6. But we're right here in chapter 7. And right before this, Jesus is talking about judging others. And a few verses after this is when Jesus gives what we call the golden rule. doesn't really seem to fit where it's at, does it? And I think the problem is maybe that we know what the passage says. We know all the words of these verses. It's probably imprinted on the coaster on your coffee table. And sometimes when we know a passage really well, the temptation kind of is to skip over it or maybe to yank it out of its context. And sometimes we forget what the passage is really fully saying. How often do we actually look at these verses and really try to focus on how it fits in what Jesus is saying in the broader picture of the Sermon on the Mount? Probably not very often, at least for me. And because of that, I think we miss its full meaning in the context of the passage. And we miss a lot of the wisdom that these scriptures have to offer. So today we're going to really focus in and analyze these two verses and put them in their full context, or at least we're going to try to, because I think that if we do that, that these verses that many of us know so well can take on new life and can teach us all over again on how to live prayerful lives. The first thing I want to notice about this passage is that it's a proverb. That is to say that it is a general truth. Just like the book of Proverbs, where each detail of each proverb isn't literally true 100% of the time. And I don't want you to stone me when I say that, but I think we need to view Matthew 7 in the same way. Now, what I mean by each bit of each proverb isn't literally true 100% of the time is something like what we've talked about in Proverbs 26, 4, and 5. You might remember from a few months ago. It says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You see what I'm saying here? That those passages are seemingly at odds with each other. Actually, not just seemingly. I mean, they they are at odds with each other. And do we look at that passage and say, oh, well, the Bible contradicts itself. It's not the perfect word of God. I guess there's no point in reading this. No, we know that both of these things are true. That the wisdom is just when to apply each one of these into specific situations. And we know that. It kind of comes second nature to us when we think about Proverbs. I mean, if you think about the phrase that the, the, the English American proverb, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Is it literally true that 100% of the time that every man, sorry ladies, but every man that goes to bed early and rises early will always be healthy, wealthy, and wise? No. We know that. It would be ridiculous to claim such a thing, but it is a general truth that if we were more responsible with our time, we'd have a better shot at being healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's what the proverb is really saying, right? So what am I saying when, Jesus, when I say that Jesus gives us a proverb here? And I'm saying it's not literally true 100% of the time. What does that mean here? And I guess what I'm trying to say is that Jesus is not, as some say when they look at this passage, he's not offering us a blank check, We can't look at this passage and say, well, Jesus, actually, I do pray, and I don't have everything I've ever asked for, and I don't have everything that I want, and therefore, you're wrong. Prayer doesn't work. That'd be ridiculous. But I think sometimes that's the mindset that we either subconsciously, or maybe some of us consciously, bring into this passage where we say, well, I've asked, why didn't I receive? I guess prayer doesn't work the way I thought it did. But that's not the meaning here. That's a very surface level reading of the passage. Instead, Jesus is urging us to a certain kind of action, a certain kind of lifestyle. And in this proverb, Jesus says, If you continue to seek God the way he asks you to, he will bless you. Not with a new car or a million dollars, but with what he knows you need. So then it's our job to dig a little deeper into the passage and try to see this lifestyle that Jesus is calling us to. The lifestyle of prayer that I kind of led with talking about. The lifestyle that is so essential for understanding this passage and in, really in living in accordance with what Jesus calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think the next key to that is parallelism. You guys have probably heard me talk about that before. I think, I've, But you guys know this. We see this a lot in the Psalms and the Prophets in the Old Testament, right? Saying the same thing, but when you repeat it, there is often, though not always, but often information kind of added the second time. The first sentence is like a, a 2D kind of an image, while the second is in 3D. It just comes alive. And another example of that from Proverbs is Proverbs 17:17. It says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You can pretty easily see the parallels here. The first sentence paints the picture of a, of a good friend, and they're loving to you, and that's a great thing. But what makes that proverb so vivid is the second Sentence. The friend is now described as a brother. They're practically family to you. That's how close this friend is. And it's not just that they love you at all times, they are born for adversity. They are ready to stick with you no matter what happens. You see the full picture come to life. And you may think, well, that's great, Gavin, but what does that actually mean here? What does that have to do with Matthew chapter 7? And I think, as I read Matthew chapter 7, what Jesus does here is very similar. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. You see, ask, seek, and knock. Now, all three of those words have a pretty similar meaning. But they're not the same. And I think when we view them separately, kind of on their own merit, I think we'll see a progression in the thought, and we'll put them back together, and the picture will come alive. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to spend some time looking at asking, seeking, and knocking, and at the end, I'll try to bring them all back together to see what Jesus is saying that we should strive for in our prayers and in our lives. So first off, he's saying, ask, and it will be given to you. And what does that kind of sound like when you think of asking God of something? What do you typically think of? Most of us think of prayer. It sounds a lot like prayer, right? I think that makes sense. Because if this passage really is the key to living lives of prayer, then the base of that life of prayer, the foundation of that, would be prayer. But what does that look like? Because I think a lot of us, and sometimes I'm included in that, will say, well, I really want to pray. Or maybe I know that I need to pray more than I do right now. That's not the issue. The issue is what we actually do about it. We don't know where to start. We don't know what to say, maybe. We don't know when to pray. We don't know how to pray. And I think that presents us with a major issue here. Sorry about that. Because Jesus is saying to be approved by God To enter into his blessings, like all of us, I assume if you're here, want to do, we have to pray. Prayer is a necessary part of the life that Jesus is calling us to. The question is, how do we pray? That's a much bigger question than I can answer in one sermon, let alone one part of a sermon, but I'll try anyway. And so... I think that one way we can answer this question is to maybe look at what Jesus has already said about prayer in the sermon. So if you're still in Matthew, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll just read verses 5 through 15. Well, we'll read verses 5 through 13. And when you pray... does Jesus teach us about praying here? About this asking that we are to do? I think the first thing that strikes me is that we are asking of God. And it may sound obvious, but it's not always, is it? Because it's really easy to get into the temptation of praying for ourselves. Or maybe praying to ourselves sometimes. Maybe that means asking for selfish things. Maybe that means praying so other people can see you as the Pharisees. But it's praying in any way that distracts from the true purpose, which is coming before our great and awesome creator. Now, that doesn't mean you can't ever pray in public. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus prayed in public many times. The early church prayed publicly together. We saw that in Acts 3 and 4 a couple weeks ago. So that's not the problem. The problem is if you're praying for the reason of being seen. Again, that's what the Pharisees are condemned for. And Jesus says they already have their reward. That is a boost to their pride. James 4.3 says that those who pray selfishly, those who pray for selfish things, their prayers aren't answered. So the first step of this prayer, asking, as we talked about in Matthew 7, is that we make sure that the focus is on God, not ourselves. But what if I don't know what to pray for or how to pray? And then we have the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus shows us a variety of things that we can pray for. We should pray for our physical needs. He says, give us this day our daily bread. We should definitely pray for our spiritual needs. Forgive us our debts. Do not lead us into temptation. And we should, of course be praying for the advancement of the gospel, that we and others are doing God's will as it is assuredly done in heaven, that we pray that our will and God's will become one. Not that we mold his will to our will, as many Christians try to do, but that we become full servants of him, that we mold our will to His, I don't know that that's not an exhaustive list of things that you can pray for. But those things can cover a lot of issues. In short, we can pray about whatever we face as long as we keep God and his will in the center of all things. Jesus said, whenever you pray, do not pray like the hypocrites. Do not pray like the Gentiles. But pray this way. And we should pray that way, focusing on God and focusing on relying on him through prayer. And when we ask for God, Jesus tells us here, when we come not for our personal selfish sakes, but in humility, in all things we must seek God's will above our own. And when we do that, when we ask for this godly wisdom, for his blessings, for him to become a part of our life, for us to be a servant of his, Jesus tells us when we ask in that way, it will be given to you. So the first aspect of this proverb that I see is asking. That is prayer. The basis for our lives of prayer, striving for God with what we say. And the second is seeking. It says, Seek and you will find. And this one might be a little harder. This one maybe doesn't come off uh, the top of your head just as easy. But I think, yet again, it's best to use the Sermon on the Mount to define itself. And so, if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll read, let's read verses 28 through 34. Matthew chapter 6, and we'll read verses 28 through 34. This is as Jesus is finishing his point about anxiety and how God cares for us and will fill our needs, which is very similar to some of the things he says in our passage today. But this is what he says in verses 28 through 34. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We'll actually stop there for now. What is Jesus saying here about seeking? Because is it the same as asking? Because we might be tempted to say, well, Jesus is saying, you can never ask for anything related to your physical needs at all. I'm tempted to say that. I've heard people say that from this passage. But from the Lord's prayer, we saw Jesus said that we can pray, and we should pray, given us this day our daily bread. So is Jesus saying here in this passage, just a few verses away, that we can never ask for anything physical? No. So then how is this asking and seeking different? What here is seeking? And what Jesus defines seeking as here, and what the Bible often defines seeking as, is setting your intention, setting your focus. See here in this passage, our anxieties are about food and clothing, good things in and of themselves, good things to pray about, not very good things to focus on. And some of these fears and anxieties can be relieved, not because we just stop caring at all about physical things, but because we change what our focus is. We reset our focus. That is not about the cares of the world, these daily troubles of our physical lives anymore, but our focus is on God. It's on his power. It's on his blessings The idea of seeking in this passage is that we focus on God, His kingdom, and doing His will. And when we seek that, He takes care of the rest. And I think this has a very similar idea to our passage in Matthew 7, that to seek God is to make Him our everything, to strive for loving Him and serving Him in the best way that we can. And if you remember... When Jesus is asked what the most important commandment is, what does he say? Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord God with your whole mind, with your whole being, with your whole strength. Jesus says that out of the whole Bible, that's the most important commandment. That's the most important thing that we need to do. That we need to seek God and we need to love Him with everything that we have. Our heart, soul, mind, strength, everything that you have needs to be focused on God. We need to seek God first before any of the distractions that the world has to offer, and we know there are a lot of them. We have to seek Him and His righteousness and His kingdom first. And when we do that, Jesus tells us we will find what we're seeking. That's what Jesus promises. The second aspect of this proverb is seeking. The second step of prayer-driven lives is to seek God, to focus on him and to love him with everything that we have, striving for God with what we think about, what we focus on and what our intentions are. And I'm going to move on to the third part because I think it's very much related. It says, knock and it will be open to you. Now, unlike the other two, there's not a very clear knocking passage in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, this exact picture of knocking is only used, as far as I know of, here and in the parallel passage in Luke 11. So that makes this one a little tougher. But let me propose something to you. How do you knock? Take up your hand. Make a little fist out of it, maybe. And you go up to the door and you, that's knocking. It is inherently an action. If I go up to Skip's front door and I sit there and I look at it and I ask it nicely to open and I focus on it really, really, really hard, is it gonna open? Is Skip gonna open that door for me? Probably not, because he's not even gonna know I'm there. And I think that there, I didn't knock. And I think that the idea of knocking inherently being something that has to be done is very much plays into what Jesus is saying here. And I want to look at a few passages that I think show that. Because Deuteronomy 6, the one that Jesus said is the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then what follows it up? And these words that I command you today, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What does the passage connect seeking God with? Observing and seeking what he commands. Those things are immediately linked. Paying close attention to what he asks of us. And in John 14, 15, right after Jesus says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it which sounds pretty similar to some of the stuff we've been talking about today. He follows that up with a definition of what loving God is. And what is it? That we feel warm, fuzzy feelings for him, or that we ignore him for most of our life, except for when we need something really, really bad. Jesus says that to love me, you will obey my commandments. And after the Lord's Prayer, what does Jesus finish it with? If you're still in Matthew chapter 6, you can read verses 14 and 15 with me. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And you can see a pattern here. The God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament repeatedly emphasize for that love, for that seeking to truly take place, it has to be paired with action. And I think that's what the knocking is, that is seeking God with what we do. It is the action that our life of prayer requires, And there's a lot of passages in the Bible that echo this, if you really think about it. That what you do to others affects your prayer life. To have a good prayer life, you have to forgive others. You have to treat your spouse well. You have to reconcile with the brother that you hurt. You can probably think of other examples than even that. And that's really what this passage hinges on. Because remember at the beginning of this lesson, I said when we look at this passage, it really seems out of context, that we always think it's about prayer, it's about our relationship with God, but that was earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. The context that it's in is about our relationship with other people. On first glance, that kind of feels odd when we look at this passage. But I want you to think of this. When Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with everything that we have, what does he follow it up with? That the second command is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. What does Jesus mean that the second commandment, this loving your neighbor as yourself, is like loving God? Do you ever think about that? What does he mean by that? Our relationship with God has to define how we treat others. That our relationship with God and our relationship with people are two sides of the same coin. They are in many ways inseparable. Loving God means loving your brother as well. And after Jesus gives this command to act and seek and knock, who does he say in verses 9 through 11? Who gets these blessings? Because in the passage, in Matthew 7, he says, everyone, but we said earlier, this not a blank check philosophy, right? So what's going on? In verses 9 through 11, he says, is there anyone among you who asks, who if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, although you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Who gets these gifts? Everyone who has God as their father. And we could ask, who is that? And I don't think it's a coincidence that after this discussion of prayer and blessings, Jesus chooses to finish this section with what we call the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The whole law and the prophets is that. These are the children of God. Those who follow God and emulate him. To get the blessings of God... To have the door open to us, to get the good gifts of the Father, we have to be like God. Not in the way that Adam and Eve tried to force themselves to be like God all the way at the beginning. But by doing the work that he does, following his commandments, loving our neighbors, serving those around us. And so the final aspect of this proverb is knocking. To live full lives of prayer, we must do the will of God, serving God and serving others, striving for God with our actions. And so then I think we see the full picture When we ask, we are praying, striving for God with our mouths and humility and awe for him. When we seek, striving for God with our minds, keeping him as our focus and our goal in all things. And when we knock, striving for God with our bodies. And when we do his will, then God sees and remembers and acts. He gives to us. He helps us find him. He opens his good things to us. This is the natural progression of a life of prayer. See, what Jesus says is is prayer isn't just four times a day, some nice words before every meal, and as you're falling asleep at night. That true prayer is a lifestyle. True prayer encapsulates everything that you do. That yeah, of course prayer is part of it, But it's also striving for God in all ways, at all times, and doing what he says. That everything we say, think about, and do, that is all prayer. And maybe that's a little more than what we normally think about when we think about a prayer. But that's true service to God. It's what we all have to strive for, to surrender everything about who we are everything we say, do, and think about to our God. Because we know that God blesses his people. He answers prayers. He gives his children good things. Not every physical, selfish, good thing that we might ask for. But something much better. He gives us himself. Which is something much better than what we normally ask for. Life for God. That's what we're striving for and that's what he blesses us with. He is who our prayer and our lives are aimed towards. And so as we think about that, we're going to pray now and then be dismissed to our classes. Father in heaven, great is your name. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for prayer. And thank you for the opportunity to be your children. Help us to live lives for you in everything that we say and think and do. Help us to mold our will to yours. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.